I can't believe we've been doing this for 52 weeks. Um, my family can't believe, you know. And Joan's talking about making $90,000 from the base, but I am in the basement. So uh, just to make that clear. Um, but our, we've had, you know, it's, it takes a village, right, to uh, to come together and uh, to take to take stamina and um, patience. Stephen, for um, every week, but two weeks, right? Stephen, I think it was you had a pitch hitter. Um, oh, and Arnold filled in, I think, three or four times. But so, well, but, but it really started in September 2019. I'm showing up in our London conference at Denton's, and Stephen's always there with five newspapers, and you know. He's, he's given you like six articles like this is you mentioned climate warming. Is it inflationary or deflationary? Well, here's the article. But that's what Stephen does every day, by the way, uh, and his team. So it's been really great to have a piece of him here with us as we once every, once a week, uh, you know, try to figure out what the hell's going on. And I think we all knew it was a quite a volatile um if you go back one year. So um, some of us have uh, um, put a few things on video, Stephen. I wanted to k- kick that off uh, for the for today's session before you – we have to put you on the spot okay. one more time. And uh, so everybody can mute themselves, uh, and that's if you do that as well. I'll, uh, I'll put this on the screen and – it's in two weeks in a row by Zoom, but it started in London. RS has helped us navigate the investment landscapes. Uh, to do something every week, I've got to do that for my principal, so I share your pain. But I'll tell you, it's interesting having stepped into the CIO spot. Uh, all of a sudden, you actually can become quite isolated, and it becomes much more difficult to get access to information and data as opposed to having, you know, being part of an asset management firm. Really appreciate uh, the updates every week. Uh, they're very helpful. I find them very informative, and uh, they're always a springboard, you know, for interesting ideas and conversations. Hi, Stephen. This is Anand. I wanted to congratulate you on number 52. Thank you for doing the weekly updates with so much great information and insights. Uh, I know it's very challenging to come out with, you know, updates and original thought and and, and discussion points on such a regular basis, but you do it very wonderfully. I've learned a lot. And especially during this COVID period, it has been such a great way to know what's happening and get your and your team's thoughts on the markets. Wishing you all the best. Appreciate you doing it through rain or shine uh, and look forward to the next 52. Take care. Hey, Stephen, I want to thank you for a year of incredible insights. I, I think, as a matter of fact, you were the first person to predict the global pandemic, or maybe not. Maybe, maybe it was talking about 5G or digital transformation or the importance of education to lowering unemployment or interest rates or ETFs or, or something. To, to be honest, I usually do the crossword puzzle while you're giving your uh, your outlook. But, but in any case, and honestly, I do want to thank you for uh, these great insights and little nuggets you give us every week. Thanks. 
Uh, we are celebrating one year anniversary of uh, Stephen Burkcast. I combined Burk with broadcast, so Burkcast. Uh, my favorite thing was in the midst of all this craziness in the past year in the markets, um, Stephen always was moderate. He was like a calm voice, uh, you know, and you know how financial news usually is extremes, you know, extreme headlines to catch your attention, extreme predictions. Um, so besides that as well, Stephen was really good at describing how the U.S. system works uh, by adding in examples and like historical events relevant to what's happening. Uh, I think that was really helpful for in our community since we have people from all around the world that might not know uh, the U.S. system as well. Um, yeah, thank you, Stephen. I look forward to more of this. Hey, Stephen, Jim Hawk here with a quick video just to tell you how much I appreciate your contributions to the 361 firm platform and your updates. Anytime I hear that velvety, slightly raspy baritone warming up, I know that it's going to be followed by some great information, geopolitical or just market trends or other considerations. And uh, I think it's invaluable. And I think the rest of the 361 firm community would agree with me. as a platform for uh, collaboration for people interested in investments. I'd say it has been attracting as a magnet. There's interesting people and interesting ideas. So I'm looking forward to staying um, uh, the course and uh, participating in more events going forward. One of the testaments to the quality um, of the people uh, the platform tracks is the series of the weekly updates by Stephen Burke. Stephen, thanks personally to you. Um, uh, we have now a to-the-point, no-nonsense stream of business news and deliberations that can easily, hands down, beat CNNs and CNBCs of this world. So keep pumping that content. Glad to have you on board. Looking forward to receiving more of your updates. Hey, Stephen, I just want to tell you how much I enjoy your thing. In fact, my wife tells me I'm a little obsessed with you. She says, you're always quoting me saying this. He said that. Stephen said this. Stephen said that. Stephen made this up. Stephen made this comment about this. Now, as a Canadian, which really means I'm a lily-livered liberal, according to my wife, um, that's not really my opinion, but I see that in you, and I think that maybe you should consider converting to Canadianism. Anyways, thank you so much for your weekly uh, update on the world and making sure that I understand what's really going on. Take care. Bye for now. Stephen Burke, congratulations and thank you for the 52-week streak of your briefings. Very impressive, only surpassed by the Yankee Clipper but you'll clearly surpass that over the next month. Um, your briefings, though, are always incredibly thoughtful, uh, really insightful, and, and certainly make us all a whole lot smarter about what's going on around the world and how it impacts the markets. Uh, I think the only thing that you know I have for now is, so what's next? In a world where we all have to continually innovate and improve upon our performance is what's next. And I think you need to, you know, brand this segment. You're such a staple of the 361 firm. We, we need to give you a headline. And so a couple thoughts thought starters. It'd be Stephen Burke, 
why it all matters, or maybe something a little more introspective. Stephen Burke, a deeper understanding, or simply the Burke briefing. So take those. I'm sure you could do a whole lot better. But、uh, thank you for the, the past year, and look forward to、uh, many more years of the Burke briefing or whatever you end up calling this thing. All right, be well. Hi, Stephen Burke. It's Sarah Truebridge. Congratulations on a year of incredible presentations. I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for keeping me so incredibly humble each and every week. As you present things, half of the time I don't even understand the things you're presenting or talking about. Which then I get excited because there's so much that I get to learn from you. So thank you so very much. You're a gem. Thanks. Good afternoon, Stephen. This is John Pagley, CEO of Invictus Advisors and a member of 361 Firm. As a special tribute to you, I want to thank you for your very valuable, perspicacious, deep, interesting, purposeful, and helpful thoughts that you share with all of us every week. Happy holidays. Stay in good health always. Hi, Stephen. I want to thank you for a whole year's worth of wisdom, intellectual vigor,、uh, and more importantly, calm and good humor、uh, under fire. Because certainly, I think we can all agree that last March and April and even May were pretty crazy times that none of us want to relive again. But、uh, thankfully, we had your wisdom there at our side, and、uh, I. Look forward to continuing、uh, being a part of the 361 family and learning more from you for many years to come. So、uh, let's keep the tradition alive. Thanks. CNN likes to call themselves the most trusted team in news, but I would actually grant that title to you, Stephen. A very big thank you for what you've been doing for the last 52 weeks. I really do value what you do every Tuesday. It's a really, really clear, concise, and on-point assessment for everything you need to know for the week. Huge value, and more than anything, you deliver with such intelligence and humility. It really is a pleasure to hear what you have to say, and looking forward very much for the next 52 weeks for keeping us all、uh, in a good train of thought. Congratulations. Been great to、uh, get your insights, which are always unique and、uh, often an early、uh, early read on、uh, big themes that are going to、uh, impact、uh, the market's activities. And、um, hopefully,、uh, we can continue to collaborate over the next few years and get past the、uh, roadblocks that have been thrown in front of us from our friends at Merrill Lynch. Good luck for 2021, and thanks again for everything you do for the、uh, for the group. Hey Stephen, congratulations on 52、uh, weekly briefings, and、um, I have to say that、uh, there are excellent foundations for the rest of the conversations we have in terms of setting the macroeconomic environment.、Um, so congratulations on a wonderful year, a trying year. I don't know how you do it. I actually have two economic degrees, and I I can't do what you do. So、um, congrats on a wonderful year.、Um, Making calls in a very difficult and unprecedented environment the last 52 weeks. I can't wait for the next 52 weeks. Congrats again. Take care. Keep up the great work. Stephen Burke, I want to say thank you so much for the last year's worth of updates. 
This is Leslie. Hi, Stephen. Your weekly updates are as insightful and as value-dense as reading The Economist magazine, but somehow you cram 18 hours of reading into 30 minutes. I appreciate it immensely. It's, it's awesome. Thanks. When I first heard Stephen Burke speak, I didn't like how he looked. I didn't like how he sounded. I didn't like what he said. I didn't like his slides, and I didn't like his firm. Took about three or four weeks, and I can't get enough of the guy. He's absolutely brilliant. Highlight of the week, best 20 minutes every Tuesday morning. He's a rock star. And look forward to all these uh, updates each and every Tuesday. Thanks so much. Uh, again, you're a swell guy. I've learned from the master, and um, look forward to to, uh, to the next one. Take care. Bye bye. Two weeks in a row by Zoom, but it started in London in 2000. Well, there you go, Stephen. Our, our tribute to you. Let's thank you very much, and thanks for all the contributed. Uh, but Mark, thanks to you, you've created a community that is really pretty special, and uh, it's really just starting to bloom. And I think the uh, future for this uh, 361 family is is really exciting. I will say for Sarah that um, you're not the only one who doesn't understand half of it. Uh, half of the stuff I say, I don't understand either. And I'm about to prove it when we talk about corporate taxes. So uh, thank you all very much for, for joining every week. So, Stephen, you want to take, uh, take control as usual? One sec here. Still learning how to do this. So uh, hard to believe it's been that long and you guys keep coming back. But uh, let me just start with the American Jobs Plan that was announced and its impact on corporate taxes. And I just want to start with a view that uh, everyone agrees that we need to spend on infrastructure for the U.S. and really around the globe. Um, but not many can agree on how to pay for it. And uh, we're about to see what I think could be a pretty interesting and maybe bruising battle uh, for the administration. They got the first uh, plan done, um, but not the, the set. This one's going to be a little bit tougher. So I want to just share, you know, Biden's agenda um, and why it's important, because it's going to be helpful to get past the spin that uh, both anyone's going to be using to discuss this. Um, and it's not really just about infrastructure, and it's, it hasn't been bipartisan uh, to date, um, but it is pa about passing one of the broadest and long-term economic and social agendas since the Reagan administration. We're going to see the biggest federal spending we've seen in a long time and potentially the biggest tax increase since FDR. So I think the questions that are really on people's minds are, can they get it passed with the narrow House and Senate majorities? And if so, what does it look like? Um, and what are they going to need to do to make it clear? But I wanted to just take a step back and look at uh, global rankings for competitiveness overall. And uh, uh, this is a report from a, uh, a Swiss-based firm that uh, works with the IMF. And you can see the U.S. has uh, been uh, backsliding a little bit, um, but most of the developed nations have been. Um, the number one uh, firm in overall rank was Singapore. 
if you go to the next one, uh, you can see economic performance. And uh, number one for that was the Netherlands in this uh, latest report. <clears throat> Government efficiency, uh, ironically, the big uh, I listed the top five uh, economies here in terms of GDP. And in efficiency, number one is Hong Kong. Uh, but you can see there's work to be done by the rest. And then in business efficiency, <clears throat> the U.S. ranks 14th. Uh, Denmark is number one, so it's uh, uh, ironic that that's where they are. And actually, I missed this one. Government efficiency is Hong Kong, not uh, uh, in. That's a big one. We could learn from what they're doing. Uh, business efficiency: the U.S. has been declining. Denmark's been number one. Uh, and in infrastructure, uh, their rankings are anywhere between five and thirteen. The, go- the government's using thirteen. This report was five. Uh, number one was Denmark. Uh, I'm sorry. Number one was Sweden in terms of this. So where are we and where are we going? So we did the first plan, which was the uh, rescue plan. It was really a relief uh, initiative, um, and it was designed to help those most impacted by the pandemic. Um, there's arguments whether that was as well targeted as it needs to be, and I think the issue we're going to see with the American Jobs Plan um, you're going to have people really pushing to make that much more targeted to go to the all the areas that really need it as opposed to any area that could need it. Um, so the administration's view is it's going to create millions of good jobs, rebuild the country's infrastructure, and position us to outcompete China. That sounds great. Um, they're using the 13th rank in overall quality of infrastructure. I don't think it matters what the rank is right now as much as for the world's wealthiest nation, we have big infrastructure needs that have to be improved, and it's going to cost a lot of money, and it's going to take a bit of time. The way the uh, jobs plan is laid out, they're breaking infrastructure down into these categories. So traditional infrastructure would be the, the stuff you would expect, roads, bridges, and the like, and we know we have big needs there. But they're also talking about you know, clean energy and power, which – um, is really more the uh, green initiatives that are being put in. R&D and manufacturing and workforce is really to try and, you know, build back the workforce that was carved out by globalization and also by, you know, many years of bad policies, including tax policies. Um, we're adding to safety net spending, which is $400 billion, and then non-traditional infrastructure. And the term that the administration's using is uh, uh, human infrastructure, which – I don't want to argue whether that's the right thing or the wrong thing to do. I think we all know it's the right thing. But the issue is, how can you pay for all this stuff and uh, and how do you move forward? And the goal is to do it through taxes. And this chart shows you from our friends at Cornerstone in the Congressional Budget Office, um, the trajectory of the current tax rate in the dark green um, and what you will see is the roll off of uh, where we would have been uh, with the uh, pre-Trump uh, uh, tax changes, and then you can see what the changes are going to be with the Biden administration. It's important to keep in mind that some of the tax changes were uh, supposed to sunset uh, after a couple of years. That's how the Trump administration got it through. But what you can see is a percent of GDP, uh, corporate taxes are going up. Um, but I think the issue really is how does it break out and what does it look like? So, um what you can see under current law is that we have about an effective rate of 17%, um, going up to 25.6% under the plan. 
Um, there's a lot of moving parts to this that I think are going to be challenged, uh, starting with the 28% corporate tax rate. <clears throat> if you go back to when Trump lowered taxes, uh, he took it down from 35 to 21 when the OECD average was 25. The logic should have been you take it to 25 um, because what we were doing with lowering the tax rate to 21 is similar to what Ireland and other countries do when they lower the global tax rate. And this is a big part of what Janet Yellen's trying to put out. So I, I suspect we'll end up in the 25% range when all said and done. I do think that there'll be an attempt um, by Janet Yellen uh, to get a global tax uh, initiative in place, and I think you'll get a lot of support for that from some nations and not from others, and I'm not sure it will work if you don't get uh, significant broad support. We'll come back and talk about this. But this is what the effective rate would look like for companies, and there, there's uh, the administration's used a number between 50 and 55 of the Fortune 500 companies pay no taxes. Um, I'm not sure that's the company's fault as much as it is the tax uh uh, policy that we have in place, and uh, we should be looking at fixing tax policy rather than just moving up and down taxes on a regular basis. But this is where we stand today, and uh, there's a lot coming towards corporate America if this goes through in its current form. So let's look at what the administration's saying, and these are some quotes for it, and it's obviously going to be about paying fair share is going to be a big theme. Um, and making the economy function better. I'm not sure the two are necessarily aligned, but um, that's the pitch from President Biden. Um, I think the idea to stabilize the corporate tax system is a good one. Uh, you can't keep changing uh, tax plans on corporations and have them make good long-term investments, um, but it needs to have a, a more global approach to it, and I don't think we're in a position to get that right now. Um, but there is an element that isn't being talked about enough, and Janet Yellen's raised it, which is the tax gap. Um, the tax gap basically is the gap between what people are supposed to pay and what the IRS collects. Uh, we've been cutting back the IRS resources for a decade or so, if not longer. Uh, their spending went from – their budget went from about $12.5 billion in 2010 to about uh, – I'm sorry, $15.5 uh billion dollars in 2010 going down to 12 and a half uh, today and maybe even lower. They're having problems keeping agents and, and all that, which means we're not collecting uh, revenues. This quote from Yellen is actually quite telling and makes you question whether the whole tax approach we're taking is the right one, or should we find a better way to collect on the taxes that we're not collecting on now? The number ranges of what we're not collecting, uh, it could be uh, between 500 and 700 billion dollars a year, which would pay for all the stuff that we want to collect if we were actually collecting the taxes the right way. So this is a really interesting issue that on one hand, Yellen is promoting, uh, supporting the IRS better, but at the same time, we're raising taxes, which is more important, I think is one of the key issues that you'll see a lot of pushback on. Um, but what others are saying is going to matter a lot, and it starts with Joe Manchin. And I've mentioned this back into January where um, when we're worrying about how Georgia was going to play out and once the vote came through, uh, Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia became one of the key uh, people. And he's not going to vote for the plan this way and is a big proponent of the 25 percent number. But more importantly, and this is a challenge for the Democratic Party right now, is um, 
they weren't very involved. And you can see that from Mark Warner's comments, another Democrat senator uh, from Virginia, where uh, he got a call from the White House basically to tell him what was going on into the plan, but not asking for any input. So uh, Manchin believes there's six or seven other Democrats that feel very strongly about this, which could make it very difficult to get through on a reconciliation. Um, now, there'll be a lot of puts and takes to get there. And, you know, these guys will get the deal sweetened to uh, some of what they want, I suspect, before it comes through. And then you add to it what the business community is saying. The National Manufacturing Association believes this will reverse all the progress that's been made over the last uh, a couple of years in trying to reshore while increasing taxes will make them less competitive and put jobs at risk and reverse some of the positive trends that have gone on. The Chamber of Commerce is, thinks this is dangerously misguided. Um, and the Foreign Trade Council obviously thinks uh, we're going to have challenges competing with our foreign competitors, particularly those that won't. Uh, work towards the global minimum. And the business roundtable is not a uh, proponent of this right now either for obvious reasons. Um, so our take on this is pretty straightforward. And uh, uh, off the screen here for a minute, um, I think there are some real challenges for the administration to get this one across the finish line in its current form. What I suspect there are three big issues. Um, first of all, the proposal doesn't address the current complexity uh in our tax system as it stands today. And it makes it too hard for businesses to adapt every time you're uh, jerking things around. So I think that's one big issue that uh, we need to look at is clean, cleaning this up. The second is I, I'm very skeptical that uh, we'll get enough global countries to go to a global minimum corporate tax. And the few uh, opt-outs will continue to have a competitive advantage and companies will uh, feel the need to go that way. And the last question, I think this is one of the biggest ones, is uh, timing. Is this the right time to be putting tax increases on when we're still dealing with a the remnants of a pandemic and need the growth to help pay for this? And uh, are we going to stymie the growth? Um, I think those are some of the big issues. But from a market perspective, um, we're going to see massive earnings growth this year. And I think that uh, that's not going to be sustainable. That's from the decline last year and the and the pop uh, that we're going to see this year. So I don't think this is the right time to put big taxes on the on the U.S. economy. Um, I do think it would be wiser to simplify our system if they can and avoid a lot of the special interest stuff that's gone on. Uh, but I'd open it up and Mark and uh, love to hear from the tax uh, experts that we have on the call. Uh, this is from an investment perspective. So I'll turn it back to you, Mark. All right, great. Usually I'm the one saying you're on mute. I was on mute. Uh, well, thank you again, Stephen, uh, week after week. Um, questions, comments? Hey, hey Mark, uh, it's it's Rob Colorini here. I've got a quick question. Uh, Stephen, um, I just I just won $2,000. I had my bet on you asking the first question. I actually, I think, I, I, I think Roger may get half of it because I think we were kind of tied. But I, I, you know, there was a pause there, and I, uh, and I, uh, <laughs> I thought you were going to say something else. That uh, what city am I in, or something like that, Mark? But um, I'm, you know, vaccinated and traveling more, so this is good. I'm getting my second day. What, what city are you in? 
I, I think I sent you a message the other day. I'm, I'm in, um, in, in the uh, 212 area code here for a visit, so in, um, in, um, in New York. Um, St- Stephen, the, um, you didn't address uh, the migration of some of these successful, particularly uh, Fortune 1000 tech companies, um, and a lot of that's driven because of tax and, um, and other uh, advantages to places like Texas, to Nevada, to, to uh, places in the South, et cetera. I, I was curious as to how the policymakers, either at the federal or state level, how are they addressing that? What are they doing to make staying put competitive, that type of thing? You know, it's interesting because uh, I wanted to uh, raise raise an issue that you're raising, which is um, at the same time the federal government's doing this, many states are raising taxes because of their lost revenues for last year. Um, so the combined impact is going to be quite high, which makes any lower jurisdiction tax area attractive. And they haven't addressed it, and they and they won't. And that's why I'm skeptical that the global tax issue will not not really work because we have a problem in the U.S., as you just mentioned, where businesses are fleeing to low, lower tax regimes in, in whether it's Texas or uh, Florida or other areas and from higher tax jurisdictions. And that's going to put more strain on the system. So they're not really addressing that. And, you know, putting your head in the sand doesn't really give you a good solution for this. So I think you're going to see greater strains if we don't find a better a better, simple, more simplified system. And then at the same time, those states have to do a better job. Uh, New York State's trying to put through a massive increase of taxes right now, which makes no sense given the amount of money they're getting from the federal government. Um, so it makes no sense the way we're do- dealing with a lot of these issues, Rob. Thank you. Other questions, comments? There's a few in the chat box, Mark. Hey, Stephen, Duncan, why are you so skeptical there would be some sort of global G8, G20 agreement on this? It just sort of seems to me everybody's got the same problem with um, the money and resources spent on COVID. I think think Janet Yellen made a good point about that yesterday, uh, Duncan, which is everyone's in the – all governments are in the same boat right now. They all need to have higher tax revenues. The problem is that some people are going to say that they can't get it from their existing businesses. And all you need is a couple people to opt out and the corporations will find them. So it, it doesn't solve the problem. And uh, I just don't see that the global economy is going to work in a way that people don't find the seek the highest returns, whether it's through lowering their taxes or other ways. And uh, that's how capitals always float. So, I think they'll get it with a, a number of them, and I don't think it'll work. Huh, okay. Well, I mean, you know, what about the, the poster child for all this is Ireland, right? It's one of them, yep. I mean, but who's the other one? I mean, they're really the guy that is, is um, the country that's exploited this over the years. Yeah, they've, they've done a, the best job. I mean, Take advantage of it. There's a couple others, and I'm blanking on it right now. Yeah. What are the tax guys want Hi, Stephen. I know you're. I know you're on the investment, not necessarily the tax side, but given where you sit, um, what's your top two or three ways to simplify the U.S. code? Um, I mean, I'm as an individual, I've been audited five times in the last 
four years by three different states and federal. And that's on an individual front. Um, on the it's equally messy. I mean, a tax code, well, depending on what you read, is anywhere from 3,000 to 7,000 pages. So how do you, your top three silver bullets on simplifying the U.S. tax system? You gotta cut out, you gotta cut out the things that all the lobbyists got put in and, and just determine which ones real, are real value added versus, you know, shell games. I mean, I think the carried interest one is gonna get a lot of, a lot of focus. Um, and, you know, when the, when the Trump lowered taxes, the Trump administration lowered taxes, I had a chance to speak to Gary Cohn after and I said, why didn't you go after that area? And he said, well, we felt we could do it with the other places. And once we got the number, we stopped. And that was that, that was it. So I don't think the government's ever really stretched to figure out what is a good plan. Um, we just keep layering on more complexity to it. So I think they're just going to have to I think you need to start from scratch, to be honest with you. But I'd like I'd prefer to let one of the tax guys answer that because they would know better why it's evolved to this mess. I, th- I think it's more politics. Um, than anything else, right? Um, very easy to vote for a tax cut. Not so easy to vote for outright spending or outright tax increase. So if you create a inducement for people to have a certain behavior by cutting tax, it makes it an easier vote to go back and then talk to your folks um, about at election time. So you could start anew, and people have floated starting anew, um, although sometimes they floated starting anew with yet an additional type of tax, um, which I don't think makes anybody happy, like adding a consumption tax. But if they start anew, what ends up happening is someone says, oh, but wait, you know, we have to still encourage home ownership. So we'll start flat and then we'll add the home ownership deduction and then it just adds back up in. So I think that it's a little bit idealistic to think that we'll get all that much simplification. In fact, I think a lot of the simplification bills have actually made it more complicated. Well, that's fair. Steve, isn't the short-term fix and the risky fix uh, a lot of inflation? Uh, well, yeah, I have to say I've been, you, you know, uh, Jim, that we we didn't think the first bill was going to go through at 1.9. We thought it would be around uh, $1 trillion on the Relief Act. Uh, I, I, I was shocked by the number, and we were talking earlier that is this uh, – uh, Biden's 42 years or 40 some odd years in Washington saying start big and work your way down and you'll still come out ahead, um, which may actually be the plan. Uh, but yeah, this is, this could have an inflationary effect if it goes through in the, in the way it is beyond transitory. This could be a permanent change to it, uh, if we're not careful. And in the short term, the numbers look big quickly, but then everything gets caught up to it and creates another problem. But that's why I said it's a short term risky, Risky uh, approach, but have have a lot of inflation quickly. But it does flow out over a decade, too. So you have to keep in mind that all the spending doesn't hit sure. all at once and all the taxes don't hit all at once. So the trade-offs are going to be there. It's it's really how they execute it, and it's too early to know what the impact's going to be. I, I would say, and I saw a note from uh, Joe Jarabek and uh, – you know, there's a commercial on today on CNBC for, for Ohio and what they're doing there. And, uh, Joe and Vlad and Mark's going to work, is going to have an event out there, uh, later this year. But what's the corporate tax rate in Ohio? <laughs> it's, uh, quite low. Um, 
And I think they're going to continue to attract people are going to have to go to where they can find the lowest uh, tax rates. So um, I think that's going to lead to a, a very interesting uh, uh, challenge for governments on, on the high tax states. I think, Mark, the tax, whole tax concept is is too discouraging for people to want to ask, ask more, and they'd rather talk about SPACs. <laughs> so, hey, Andrew Randack here. Last comment is abolish Citizens United, and you will get go a long way in reforming the tax code. I, I'm curious, just outside the U.S., obviously we're not just it's a very U.S.-focused, you're a somewhat U.S.-focused group. I, I, Batsala, if you could represent Asia for a moment, you know, Asia not hit, did not have to provide the stimulus to the, to the same degree. Europe, um, is really stepping backwards. It's, it's, uh, you know, and, uh, the U.S., we're, we're innovating with, with vaccines and, uh, we get it wrong, but then we get it right. And then we're going to get wrong again. But how, how have you been faring how, as you look across Asia? Yeah, so all the um, governments here also provided, uh, you know, huge stimulus, um, to, you know, stimulate the economy as well as, you know, banks provided moratorium to, um, you know, about six months moratorium for interest payments. So to help revive the economy. So that sort of like, you know, help to, uh, you know, stimulate the growth, you know, during this pandemic. So that was really helpful. So there's no um, direction from the government to increase taxes, so not. Yeah, so that that's how it stays. And um, currently we are, you know, all rolling out the vaccine distribution. So that's where we are right now, hopefully. So the economy is expected to grow with the help of the government. Yeah, I don't, how young is the population in Malaysia? Uh, yeah, about uh, 30 million, 30 million. The population. One thing I just we we were talking we had an India deep dive um, and just in terms of youth of the like the average age I want to say is like 28 going to 32 to 2030, and mm-hmm. they're sort of suffering through COVID and moving on. Not uh, sort of a different thing for our society, an older society. But yeah, sure. So yeah, you're right. Uh, here is you know, is more of a younger demographic. Yeah. You know, Mark, the, I, I recall the presentation. I'm sorry. You bring up a good point about what's going to make uh, getting a global uh, minimum tax through is the unevenness of the recovery and the unevenness of the vaccination process rolling out around the world. And when you have multi-speed economies, it's hard to get uh, agreement on uh, global initiatives like a global tax. So I think that's going to be another roadblock towards that. But. Stephen and, and Mark, you, I mean, you both had brought up a good point in terms of also just the demographics. I mean, how much also in terms of the deficit and also the spending now is from a balance sheet perspective is actually tending to, uh, in most of the developed countries, an aging population versus a younger population. And um, if even if we were to have on our um, individual tax um, forms, if you're an individual 65 and above, and if you choose not to take Medicare or not to take um, some Social Security benefits. I mean, I'd be curious. Uh, I don't have, know the specific percentage, but I'd be curious um, if there'd be incentives for 
taking some of the liabilities that are built into servicing an aging population. And if we also have this massive wealth transfer going on of 14 to $20 trillion, if there's a way of um, not taking that as a liability from the government and putting it towards a, a you know, younger uh, the population or part of the generation skipping. I mean, I know I'm kind of opening up a kind of a couple, couple of cans of worms here, but we'd love to hear a little bit of viewpoint on just, is this really just a liability uh, as a liability mix? We have a minute and 40 seconds. And you ask a question like that. <laughs> you didn't go. It, it actually is an amazing question. I, I'm like so glad you asked that. And it's so interesting as well, like that concept that you can just opt out and be like, look, I'm good. I don't need it. Keep it in the piggy bank. Uh, that's brilliant. I mean, there was a great, um, and obviously this can take many different turns, but um, uh, what's her name from Morgan Stanley? Uh, Mary Meeker had put together that great piece um, um, called The World, was that the USA Inc.? Um, and really just kind of showing the balance sheet of the U.S. and how it's grown and where it's kind of focused on through the years when she was over at Kleiner Perkins. But, you know, as we look at the emerging markets, I mean, we see a lot of good growth and good opportunities. It would be interesting if we could get almost incentive, um, you know, even tax incentives for investing in ESG and uh, the youth or certain um, health care or education programs. You know, from what I hear in the market with ESG, there seems to be plenty of money to invest because people have, been, have raised so much capital. All the banks are completely incentivized to do their best to to fund these things. I actually think, like, where the subsidies may go that might be more productive is actually that transition of the old, you know, energy or the old economy and help people kind of migrate into the new one because it seems like all the renewables and everything, like, they're knee-deep in, in cash to some extent. So maybe the, t- the takeaway, we should have a deep, a deep dive to talk about some of these nuances and we bring the experts on the – maybe we bring some politicians, God forbid. Um, but let's uh, – There's it's 11.45. I want to hand this off uh, to uh, Simon Vine, who's put together – you know, there's another, you know, in, in all of this, we were talking about SPACs earlier on and how in some ways it's, you know, it's certainly Wall Street at its best, creating products and moving money. Uh, it, it'll go, it'll flow and, and ebb. Um, so we have experts who will tell us where they think it's going. Uh, but in the meantime, there are some new people here. I just wanted to uh, let them know who we are uh, in this community. We're just... We're usually a community that we don't have the answers. We're not trying to say we do, um, but uh, we're going to figure it out together. So uh, this is our, this is who we are for those who don't know us. Mm-hmm.